beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you ever have it that you have this, this nightmare and you're trying to run and you can't move and it's just so, so frightening? Well, can you imagine a nightmare in which you're, you're locked in this, this long, dark corridor and you can't find a way out? And, and there behind you in the darkness somewhere, there's some frightening, monstrous being which is moving slowly and inexorably towards you. And there are some doors along this corridor. And in your desperation to find a way out, you, you try door after door, but, but all of the doors are locked. And you run along that hallway away from the threat, looking for a way out, looking for deliverance. On a way, we see such a drama being played out on the first Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is a play in three acts. Sin, salvation, service, guilt, grace, gratitude, or as the headings of the catechism itself put them, our sin and misery, our deliverance, that's the section we begin today, and then our thankfulness. What I want to do before we move right into Lord's Day 5 is do a quick review of where we've come from. It's important for us to note how and why the catechism deals with sin and misery first. It is fundamental, it is indispensable for us to know how serious the situation is for man in his natural state of fallenness and sin. Outside of Christ, we are lost. Outside of Christ, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. We are enemies of God. We are children of wrath. We know only selfishness and hate. Now, these are very unpleasant truths, but they are vital truths. For until man realizes his lostness, he will never understand his need for grace. And so we see in Lord's Days 2 and 3 and 4 some marvelous teaching going on in the form of dialogue, questions and answers. We see the questioner trying his level best to avoid the biblical truth of total depravity. And he, as he squirms under the penetrating light of God's law, he, he makes all kinds of attempts to deny or to explain away the fact that he is locked in this dark, corridor of sin and judgment and curse, and that there is no one other than himself who is responsible for his miserable condition, and that he has no resources to extricate himself from the situation. And that's what we just went through in the last weeks, where Summarizing scripture after scripture after scripture, the church has confessed our sin and our misery and where it leaves us. It begins, and if you, if you want to follow along as we quickly skim through these Lord's Days, it begins in, in Lord's Day 2 where the sinner is confronted with the fact that he stands under that judgment of God's law of love in the blazing light of God's law of perfect love. We stand exposed for what we are by nature, selfish, sinful, hateful. But the sinner, clever sinner that he is, is resolved to make a quick exit from the scene of the crime and deftly throws the blame on God. It's an old one, as old as 
Adam and Eve. Adam did that. The woman you gave me. Eve did that. The serpent you made. Trying to blame God. And here's the same old, tired old attempt to blame God for our sin. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? Lord's A3. The sinner actually dares to suggest that God has made us the way we are. So obviously we are not to blame. Well, that door doesn't work. There's no exit. There's no solution. There's no answer. There's no escape through that doorway. The catechism draws its understanding not from the polluted wells of man's sinful nature, but rather from the pure waters of the scriptures. It doesn't take long for the catechism to set the sinner right on this one. The scriptures clearly teach that God made man and everything else in all creation good, 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 seven times good. And so that attempt to escape is barred to the sinner, so he runs further and tries another door. And this is another clever attempt. Well, if God didn't create us that way, you tell me then where our depraved nature comes from. That's question answer seven. In other words, well, whose fault is it then? Once again, the sinner hits a brick wall as he tries to find a way of escape. He comes up against the incontrovertible account of the fall contained in the Scriptures. And this historical account gives us a blow-by-blow description of man's disobedience in paradise and the terrible consequences of that disobedience. And there in Genesis chapter 3 already, we read about how sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So he can't refute the historicity of the fall, and now the sinner tries to minimize its effects. And that's question answer eight. Come on now, let's be reasonable. Okay, we fell from grace, but it, it wasn't like Humpty Dumpty, was it? I mean, surely we can put things back together again. Surely there has to be something good left in man. Are we really totally depraved? And the catechism simply answers with a resounding yes. But this yes is not intended to leave the sinner depressed and hopeless, for the catechism quickly adds a small glimmer of light of the gospel, even the part in the part on sin and misery, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. There's some hope. There is an answer somewhere. There is an out somewhere. The catechism wishes to point sinners to the biblical and gospel truth, that sinners need to look to God for deliverance. Even in the middle of the section on sin and misery, there's a spark of light here. It's as if the catechism is saying to the sinner, look, you can't get out of this by pretending that it's not as bad as it is, but have you noticed that way down the corridor, there's some light coming from underneath that doorway down there. Why don't you try that one? But the sinner isn't paying attention. He's still in a state of denial, and he moves on in chapter Question answer nine, he moves on to protesting, this is not fair. God is doing an an injustice, isn't he? I mean, I'm in this dark mess, sure, okay, it's my own fault. But how can God judge me for not walking in the light? How can he be so unfair? Doesn't he realize that I'm stuck in this dark corridor? How can he have such unrealistic expectations of me? And the catechism answers from the scripture, as it always does, in question answer nine. 
Well, God created man with the full capability to walk in the light. Man had it all. He had everything necessary. But he threw it all away. He deprived himself. He robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Now, if, if the teacher asks the children to make a painting for art class, and the teacher gives paper and brushes and paint and a desk to paint on and the plastic thingamummy that goes underneath to keep things clean, and the teacher gives everything that's necessary and leaves the room for a few minutes and comes back, and the student has crumpled it all up and, and burned it, and then the teacher says, well, where's your artwork? And then the student says, I don't believe it. You are so unfair. How can you expect me to paint something when I have no paint, no brushes, and no paper? Well, the reason you don't have the paint and brushes and paper is because you burned them. You had them. Why didn't you just do your job? That's kind of what man is doing here in, in question answer nine, blaming God for his throwing away all of God's good gifts. Also, that's another door that's been tried, another attempt foiled. And so the sinner is pausing for a moment. He's reaching now rather deep for excuses. And he says, well, look at, verse, look at uh, question answer 10. He says, well, what if God just kind of forgot about this? Can God just pretend it never happened? What if God was like Father Christmas? What if he just kind of looked with a twinkle in his eye through his fingers and, and just pretended that we were not naughty children after all? Can't he just forget about it and move on? Well, that doesn't work. Once again, the catechism goes to the Scripture. And the testimony of Scripture is clear. Sin cannot be ignored. Sin must be dealt with. Sin brings curse. Sin brings destruction. Sin brings eternal death. It must be punished now and forever. You can't just ignore the fact that sin happened. That's kind of like being in a spaceship in space and somebody opened the door and said, do not open, and somebody opened the door anyway. What's going to happen to the atmosphere inside these spacecraft? You're going to lose all the oxygen. And when you don't have any oxygen, you can't breathe. And then you kind of say, oh, yeah, that was a bad mistake. But can't, Captain, can't we just close the door and pretend everything's okay? Pretend it never happened. No, you can't pretend it never happened. You can't breathe. Everybody's going to die. What happened has to be undone. It has to be fixed. And that's the way sin is in the world. It cannot just be swept under the rug, even though we as human beings love to do that. We'll have to try to do that. Well, the sinner feels the walls closing in on him. He's starting to run out of excuses. And, and so he goes to question answer 11. He says, well, wait, stop. Isn't, isn't God merciful? Okay, so he can't just pretend it's not there, but, but can't he forgive it? Can't he just say, it's okay, I forgive you. We can start over. Isn't that possible? And of course, here the sinner is getting a little closer to the right answer. Yes, God is merciful. God is a forgiving God. He's on the right track. But the thing is, God cannot 
be one of his attributes at the expense of another. You can't take God and divide him into bits. In the Belgian Confession, we confess that God is simple. And what that means is that you can't divide God into parts. He is all holy. He is all just. He is all righteous. He is all love. He is all merciful. And you can't put one part of God against the other because God doesn't have parts. He is who he is, perfectly and infinitely. And so God cannot be merciful at the expense of being just. We can. We can do that with our children. We think, well, my child actually deserves to be deprived of certain privileges for a week, but maybe I just don't feel the energy to do that, so I'm going to be merciful, and we can play off mercy against justice, and our kids know that very well. God can't do that. He is perfectly, divinely, infinitely merciful, and he is perfectly, divinely, and infinitely just. And his justice requires that full payment be made for sin. That punishment is fair. It is in line with the offense. The sin is treason against the most high majesty of God. And the punishment is everlasting death of body and soul. The Bible says it. Hebrews chapter 10. We know him who said it is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, that's the review of Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4. It's the first part of the Catechism, the part on sin and misery. It's just a very small section, but it's an absolutely indispensable section for teaching the way of salvation. I've mentioned that numerous times. You see, the Catechism knows how important it is that sinners know how bad their situation is. If we're banal about our sins, we will be banal about our Savior. The more we understand the infinite horror of our sin and the punishment that it deserves, the more we are able to appreciate the infinite love of our Savior and the life that comes in Him. So parents, as we bring up our children in the fear of the Lord, don't kind of just smooth over talking about sin. Spend the time to talk about the exceeding sinfulness of sin because the darker that we make clear that that is, the greater the light of the grace and glory of God in Christ will shine for our children. It's also good when we witness of Christ to people who do not know him. It's very difficult to draw people to Christ if they have no idea of how much they need him. It may seem unpleasant. It may seem awkward to talk about sin. But it can actually mean eternal life for someone if we are able gently to show them how we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and how we can all only find hope in Jesus the Savior. What we need to know, these are not things that the church has made up. These are facts. These are facts which are true of every human being. All, says the scripture, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And any unbeliever out there that you meet, deep down in their hearts, they know there's something wrong. And many of them are carrying some kind of guilt 
or some kind of shame for something they've done and how desperately they need to hear the glorious truths of the gospel of our deliverance. Don't be shy to tell them the truth because it sets them free when it points them to Christ. So we come to Laws A5, we come to the second section of the Catechism. Isn't it wonderful that we come so quickly to the explanation of Scripture's teaching about our deliverance? The Catechism knows it's important to know our sin and misery, but the, the church doesn't sit there for, you know, 10 months of the year kind of just spinning our tires in sin and misery. And, and unfortunately, some Reformed churches have gone this route where they kind of get stuck in the first part of the Catechism. Maybe you know some fellow Reformed believers that are kind of in that groove where it's just everything's sin and everything's misery. And we never leave that station. We never get to the good stuff. And then there's a choir evening on Christmas and let's choose Psalm 51 and sing about our sin again. We've got to be careful that we don't fall into that trap, brothers and sisters. We need to deal with it. We need to be honest about it. And we need to move quickly to the good news. And that's what we're doing here in Lord's Day 5. And now there's this glimmer of hope. The sinner is snapped out of his denial stage. He recognizes his sin and misery, his lostness. He, he recognizes that he deserves, according to God's righteous judgment, temporal and eternal punishment. So he's looked around, he's acknowledged that he's, he's locked in this dark corridor with, with the walls of judgment moving in, and he stops running around randomly, hitting into the walls and trying doors randomly. He stops, he takes stock of the, the situation, and he says, okay, okay, this is the situation. I acknowledge it, I can't fix it. I can't ignore it, I can't escape it, I can't pretend it away. I need help. How can we escape? Yes, a question. Finally, is there a way out? How can I escape? That's question answer 12. The church says, yes, there is a way out. I'm glad you asked. Sin can be paid for. If your sin is fully paid for, you can be translated from darkness to the light. It's very simple. Romans 2 verse 9 there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In other words, if you manage to be free from the guilt of your previous sins and to live a perfect and sin sinless life, you can certainly expect to be received into heavenly glory. Well, that's somewhat encouraging so the sinner moves along the corridor and tries the handle of another door. Can I pay for my own sins and get this over with? That's question answer 13. No, says the church. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible teaches that you are actually increasing your debt against God every day. There is no way in the world you can even freeze the debt load at its current level, let alone diminish it and work it back down to zero. If we have to pay for our own sins, what's it going to look like? Well, that looks like living for all eternity under the righteous judgment of God in hell. That payment will never end. That's the only way the sinner can pay for his or her sin, to pay for it forever. And that's not a really attractive option, is it? 
So what about this door, says the sinner? Maybe, maybe there's some creature that can, that can pay in my place. And notice that the sinner is, is moving closer and closer to that door further up the corridor, the door that we saw some light coming underneath back in Lord's Day 3, the door which upon a closer observation is actually standing a little ajar. Back in question answer 12, there's a word which is important for the gospel. Either by ourselves or through another. That's a gospel word. There's some hope here. It points to the possibility of substitutionary atonement, that someone can die in my place. Someone can fix this. But the sinner doesn't notice that he's got the wrong door marked another. He's got the door marked another creature. That's not good enough. That's the wrong another. It just won't do. Man has sinned. Man must be punished. The Bible says the soul that sins shall die. That's divine justice. God says, Yeah, my sons and daughters, my children, they sin, but we'll just what we'll do, we'll take all the angels and we'll put all the angels in hell forever and punish them instead. How about that? That wouldn't be a just God. In the second place, you think that there exists any creature which would be strong enough to survive the infinite burden of God's eternal wrath against sin, and on top of that, also deliver other creatures as well? And the answer is no. What does the Bible say? Nahum chapter 1, 6, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. No one can endure the anger of God for themselves, let alone on behalf of others. And so there's, there's some light of comprehension now dawning on the face of our friend, the sinner. Perhaps it's some of the light spilling from that door up the corridor, which is slightly ajar. The door which is marked another with a capital A. And it's, it's open just enough to see that there's this glorious blazing amount of light behind it. And so the questioner in the catechism asks, what kind of a mediator, what kind of a deliverer must we seek then? Notice that the excuses and the attempts to find quick solutions have all dried up. The sinner realizes that after he has run into all these walls and vainly tried to break through all these locked doors, that there is set before him now a door that he has not touched. The door has not been opened by his efforts. The door has been opened by someone else. Who is this someone else, asks the sinner. Who will open the gates of heaven for me? Now, sometimes we hear Christians making supposedly funny jokes about St. Peter and the pearly gates and all kinds of humorous problems that crop up when people try to get into heaven. But it's actually not very funny at all. It's a very serious thing. It's the most serious thing in the universe. How can I, a sinner, be received into the presence of a holy God because with him is life, and apart from him there is only judgment, wrath, and death for all eternity? It's no joke. It's the greatest and most fundamental question in all the universe. It's the most important question for your life and for mine. 
And I'm reminded of an elderly lady in the province of Quebec. Some years ago, she was the mother of a friend of mine. Some years ago, she was on her deathbed. She'd spent all her life following the rules and rituals prescribed by the Church of Rome. She had worked her fingers to the bone doing good works to earn her way into eternal joy to pay for her own sins. And as this little old lady lay there dying and considering her impending death, in anguish, she cried out to her children, Who will open the gates of heaven for me? That's the stage the sinner has reached in his search for deliverance. Lord's Day 5, question answer 15, he throws up his hands, he gives up, and he says, who will open a door for me? Well, says the catechism, congratulations. You've come to the point to which every sinner needs to come. You've come to the point where you realize that there is absolutely no solution to your sin and to the sin of the world. There is absolutely no way out if it comes from some, unless it comes from someone who is not a mere creature. We need to look to the Creator for an answer. You see, what does the proverb say? Righteousness delivers from death. But you, together with all creatures and all creation, are bound under the curse of sin and death. There is no righteousness to be found in you. And so you need to look away from yourself. You need to look to someone who has perfect righteousness. A perfectly righteous man. And at the same time, God himself. Now to the sinner, this may sound like a very long shot indeed, my only hope is to find someone else to save me, that someone else has to be a sinless man and at the same time true God. Can such a one actually exist? Is there any chance that this another with a capital A really exists? Well, the sinner at this point may still be a little bewildered, but those of us who are Christians and have therefore read the script of the whole play many times over, we're rejoicing at this point because we know the ending. We know what comes next. We know who is behind that door that is ajar. We rejoice because the sinner has finally realized that his only hope is in that open door behind which stands the beloved Savior whom we know so well. The one who is holy and true. The one who holds the key of David, who opens and no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. The one who says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. We know who it is. We know his name. We know his love. We know his forgiveness. We know his presence. We know his spirit who lives in our hearts. We know his grace which fills our lives. We have walked through that door that he has opened for us. And we have passed from death to life, from darkness to light, through the Scriptures. We have come face to face with God incarnate. God made man. But the sinner has not yet heard his name in Lord's Day 5. 
And yet, he's already learned enough to know that he cannot live without this Savior. And this mediator, the one who is God and man, in him and in him alone there is life and light and joy in everlasting abundance. There is forgiveness and redemption for the sinner. This is what the Bible's been telling us the whole time. From the very, very first chapters, the Bible's been pointing us to this mediator. This is the mediator we sang about in Psalm 130 as that same gospel dynamic happened in that psalm as it happens throughout the scriptures. We're deep in our sin and misery out of the depths. All we can do is cry and ask God to do a work of salvation. Hope in the Lord of Israel. With him is steadfast love and plenteous redemption. And that's where the catechism has brought our questioner. When we know this gospel, when we know about this Savior, this mediator, he's so amazingly glorious that he loves us with a deep and abiding and forgiving and transforming love. And that he is the only answer. Then we can't wait to tell other sinners about him. We can't wait to tell others his name. Children, do you know his name? His name is Jesus. Amen.